Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the debate over what to do with nuclear waste at Prairie Island, Farm Fest 2017, and the U of M's Big Ten Media Days. But first, this week marks the 10-year anniversary of the 35W bridge collapse, which resulted in 13 deaths and nearly 150 injuries. To commemorate this tragic event, the Minnesota Historical Society will display a part of the bridge at the Mill City Museum. I recently spoke with curator Adam Scherer about the exhibit and what the collapse means to Minnesotans 10 years later. We will have uh, a piece of the bridge uh, on display at Mill City Museum from July 28th through August 30th. And this particular section of the bridge was the part that was identified by the National Transportation Safety Board as being the probable cause of the collapse. There were a series of gusset plates, uh, which are basically hold together structural members of the bridge that were built too thin. The, the original company that, uh, or engineering firm that designed the bridge miscalculated the necessary thickness for these gusset plates. And so it was essentially a, uh, an engineering flaw that resulted in these parts of the bridge uh, failing due to being too thin that caused the collapse. So the part that people are going to be able to see is going to be from that section of the bridge, which NTSB believe failed first and caused the collapse. And Adam, can you tell me a little bit about the process of how the Historical Society was able to acquire this particular part of the bridge? Well, the the Minnesota legislature mandated that parts of the bridge would be preserved and would go to the Minnesota Historical Society. So Minnesota Department of Transportation saved sections of the bridge, including this particular section. And uh, we had the opportunity to select a number of pieces uh, that were available. We, of course, wanted to preserve the part which was identified as the probable cause. And we also selected a couple of other pieces that were adjacent to this particular section, partly because they were also uh, involved in contributing to the collapse, but also uh, we wanted to have some pieces that were evocative enough to, uh, to represent the level of destruction that this collapse resulted in. So we have, in addition to the piece that's going to be displayed, we have other pieces in storage that the public won't get to see for this particular exhibit, but we have one one piece uh, the largest piece that we collected that's probably about 6,800 pounds that really is quite uh, evocative of uh, the level of destruction that occurred due to the collapse that we, we wanted to preserve for that reason. Just curious if you can give me some of your reactions to some of these items when you see them uh, in light of uh, the tragedy that, uh, that we all witnessed when it happened 10 years ago. Well, I was I was living in Virginia at the time, but I had lived in in Minnesota. Was working for the Minnesota Historical Society prior to that. So, when I saw it on the news, I was very familiar with that bridge and was absolutely shocked, like the rest of the the world, to see something of this magnitude occur. In some respects, 
it could have been much worse if it had been at some other time of day, probably there could have been a lot more fatalities. But, you know, when we when we go over bridges and one doesn't expect this type of thing to happen. And so it was quite a shock. And the fact that we were able to acquire not just the bus door, uh, but parts of the bridge, uh, we've also acquired uh, a shirt from a Red Cross first responder, as well as clothing items from some of the construction workers who built the new bridge that opened in 2008. So uh, that, along with things like original bridge plans, which are part of the state archives that MHS uh, manages, we really do have not a comprehensive, but uh, I think a very thorough collection of items that are able to tell this story in a very evocative way. When you hear from people that uh, that see these kinds of artifacts, I mean, w- is there a typical reaction to something like this? Is it is it difficult for people to see these things, or does it help them sort of understand the, the history of what happened? Well, I think it's a bit of both. I think that certainly anyone that was involved in any way in the collapse, either uh, if they were on the bridge or they were assisting people who were injured or even people who had been involved in uh, the salvage and the and the building of the new bridge, uh, they they really share a very intimate connection to this particular moment in time. And so anything that's directly related to the history of this incident is going to strike a chord with them. And I think that even for people who weren't intimately involved, members of the general public, this was uh, just such an incredible uh, tragedy and uh, uh, an event that Ten years later, people people remember where they were when they heard about it. Uh, so it's it's really seared in the memory of Minnesotans. And so I think in that way, these objects really tell not just a story of an historical event, but have a very intimate and, and close meaning to people. Thank you to my guest, Adam Scherer. Again, that exhibit will remain on display through August 30th. Minnesota Matters will return after this. a simple idea can be developed into something big that can change the world. This is Katy Perry. In fourth grade, my music teacher helped me make a vision board. It was a collage that represented all of my hopes and aspirations in music. But what if my teacher didn't have the supplies we needed to make our collages? What if I never got the chance to learn and express my dreams? Unfortunately, that's the reality our teachers face every day. They're forced to spend their own money, sometimes just to keep the classroom running. That's why I'm teaming up again with Staples for Students to donate $1 million to DonorsChoose.org, a charity that helps teachers get what they need to bring learning to life for students. DonorsChoose.org has helped fulfill more than 700,000 classroom projects, benefiting more than 18 million students. It's an idea that's changing the world. It's easy to help. Donate in Staples stores or learn more at staplesforstudents.org.
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The question of what to do with spent nuclear fuel from power plants like Prairie Island and Monticello has been on and off lawmakers' plates in St. Paul and Washington, D.C. for decades. There are new developments this week. Bill Werner is here to bring us up to date. Scott, after nuclear fuel at power plants is exhausted, it is first moved to a spent fuel pool and then to dry casks outside the plant. XL Energy, then Northern States Power Company's request of state lawmakers in the early 1990s to authorize the casks, sparked one of the most contentious battles at the legislature in recent history. Opponents warned the nuclear waste would end up in Minnesota forever. Backers of dry cask storage pointed to the federal government's plan for a national repository, most likely at Yucca Mountain, Nevada. But after decades of political infighting, it is still not open. Second District Minnesota Congressman Jason Lewis is sponsoring a bill that would authorize interim storage of spent nuclear fuel at Yucca Mountain and further push the state of Nevada to agree to a permanent repository there. Lewis's bill has gotten some traction in the federal budget process, and we talked with him about it. Do you think that finally Nevada is going to um, accede to this? Uh, they, they've been resistant to, to it for a long time. What, what, what would change things now? Well, I'm not quite certain how uh, they will react. That's up to them, and, and uh, they're a sovereign state like anybody else, and their representatives can represent them as as they see fit. But look, the, the entire Congress has been looking at this for quite some time, to your point. Uh, Yucca Mountain is clearly the best. It meets all safety regulations. It meets the one million year time frame. It is the best spot for this. And the reason we've got not only interim storage issues, but on-site interim storage issues is because we can't come to an agreement. So Look, there, there comes a point where you've got to quit talking about it and get something done. And so I, I, I'm representing my district as best as I can. And it's time to get the storage or at least start the process of getting the storage out of Prairie Island. Can the Congress move this through without uh, Nevada, uh, their elected officials, they're agreeing to it? Well, I don't think you want to do that without input from every particular stakeholder. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, within the confines of the Constitution, it's still majority rule. So the Congress could move forward with it uh, if, if push came to shove, even if Nevada was opposed. I think that's what we're attempting to do. George Crocker with the North American Water Office is a veteran of many battles during the early 1990s of the Minnesota legislature, and he contends the Lewis bill is misdirected. The fundamental problem here is that this legislation suffers from all of the same flaws that we've been kicking around for all of these decades. I mean, it's a, it's a stopgap, uh, short-sighted, uh, knee-jerk response to a uh, uh, stated, supposed need that the nuclear industry has to ship waste away from reactor sites. But it's not, any, it's not a comprehensive nuclear waste management program, and that's what we need. What is the way to get around this problem? Is it, is it uh, solar and wind, or, or what is it? Well, there's, there, that's, a, that's a, about a three-part joke. Um, the first is you have to stop making this material. We will not solve the nuclear waste problem so long as, as nuclear industry people continue making more money by making more waste that nobody knows what to do with. Once we've stopped producing more waste, why, it will at least arguably be possible to get our arms, as a society, to get our arms around what should the criteria be for the sacrifice zone that, uh, that needs to be established to, 
contain this material, what will be the technologies that will be deployed in the sacrifice zone, and how will we adequately compensate those currently abiding in the sacrifice zone. But none of that can happen so long as we get uh, continued to be overwhelmed by the sheer volume of it. Congressman Lewis responds, you can't have it both ways. You can't say we've got to reduce our carbon footprint and you get the most viable renewable energy source, which has no emissions whatsoever, and, oh, we don't want that either. Uh, at some point, you've got to come to the table and be serious about compromise if reducing emissions, for example, is your goal. Nuclear power has got to have a role in that. But you can't have it both ways if you're looking for alternative sources of energy. Crocker contends there are many alternative sources of energy available and developing. There's a myriad of modern technologies, of, of uh, renewable energy technologies, of energy efficiency opportunities, of hybrid wind solar facilities, fuel cell technologies, all sorts of this. There's no lack of very cost-effective, very efficient modern technologies that would not only solve the nuclear waste problem, but they'd also solve a whole lot of other environmental problems, uh, climate chaos, for example, as well as a whole lot of social problems that have to do with the utterly inequitable distribution of wealth and power in the society uh, to enable local economic development, local wealth production as communities take responsibility for uh, managing their own energy requirements. Lewis says alternative sources can address some, but not all, of Minnesota and the nation's energy needs. Wind and solar are intermittent, and so therefore every renewable power plant, we've got to have a traditional backup. It could be nuclear, it could be coal-fired, it could be natural gas. But you can't leave them alone because sometimes the wind doesn't blow and sometimes the sun doesn't shine if you're outside of Arizona. So until you figure, figure the ability to transmit energy and store it from those renewable sources, you're going to have to have these backups. Proponents of alternative energy say the technology is such that sources spread across a large geographic area minimize the need for so-called baseload plants like coal, natural gas, and nuclear. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Son, uh, can you hand me that big screwdriver? This one, Dad? Uh, no, that's a wrench. Uh, I need the long one close to your foot. Why? Uh, because I need to loosen a screw. Why? Because I have to change the oil filter. Why? Because I love you! <laughs> the smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Alright. Now pass me the new filter. Why? Ha <laughs> <laughs> very funny. <laughs> Take time to be a dad today. For more information, dial 1-877-432-3411 or visit us at www.fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. As a young teenage boy, I didn't even know what autism was. How do you even spell that? A few years later, I heard that a friend's cousin's son had been diagnosed with autism. I still wasn't sure what that really meant. When I went to college, my roommate's brother had autism. When I moved to the city for work, my best friend called me and told me his son had been diagnosed with autism. We were both in shock. 
I still remember the day I walked into the house and saw that look on my wife's face. I knew something was wrong. I'll never forget how I felt when she said, our son has autism. Autism is getting closer to home. Today, one in 110 children is diagnosed with autism. That's a 600% increase in the last 20 years. Learn the signs at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Believe it or not, it's Farm Fest time yet again, and Brownfield's Mark Dorenkamp has the latest. For those who aren't familiar, Farm Fest is a huge farm show held at the beginning of August each year in Redwood County. In addition to large equipment displays and field demonstrations, Farm Fest features some excellent forums intended to highlight issues important to agriculture. Farm management analyst Kent Tesey helps organize the forums and says the rural health care dilemma in Minnesota will be the focus on the first day of Farm Fest, Tuesday, August 1st, beginning at 10.30. We got Emily Piper, the... Uh uh, Minnesota Department of Human Resources Commissioner and several other people uh, on a great panel there to discuss uh, the health care dilemma in Minnesota and the Midwest and big issue out there. Uh, that afternoon we're going to focus on strategies for farming in challenging times. Certainly we're dealing with tight profit margins and uh, Dave Fredrickson, Commissioner of Agriculture, will be there. Uh, Paul Anderson, who's chair of the State House Ag Committee, and uh, some other experts uh, in the business of farm management with the University of Minnesota and uh, also the Farm Business Management uh, Group out of the Technical College System. And Bob Worth, who long a Minnesota soybean grower uh, from out in Lake Benton will be on there as well. Uh, then we moved to the middle day, and we're get, we got a National Ag Policy Roundtable at 10.30 in the morning. That's on August 2nd. Zippy Duval, president of American Farm Bureau, will be joined by some other uh, representatives who sit on national boards uh, from the state of Minnesota with uh, farm organizations and commodity groups. Uh, that afternoon, uh, we have a forum titled Transitioning to the Next Generation of Farmers, and uh, we got a great panel of a mixture of uh, uh, farm operators as well as some folks that work with farm operators talking about some of the opportunities and some of the challenges as we move from one generation to the next in farming. And then Thursday, uh, normally we kind of wind down on Thursday, but we got a pretty big Thursday this year at Farm Festival, final day, August 3rd. Uh, that morning from 10 till noon, uh, We'll have one of the six locations across the country uh, of the U.S. House Ag Committee of their Farm Bill listening sessions. Be titled the next Farm Bill Conversations in the Field. Be hosted by uh, U.S. House Ag Committee Chairman Michael Conway from Texas and uh, ranking member uh, Colin Peterson from Minnesota. And we've heard indications that uh, several members of the House Ag Committee will be in attendance from the upper Midwest as well as a few from out of the area. And there will be opportunities for uh, those in attendance to sign up to address the U.S. House Ag Committee and what their thoughts are on the Farm Bill. And we wrap up, of course, on Thursday, as we traditionally do. Uh, we'll be recognizing about 75 county farm families of the year at 1.15 that afternoon. Kent, briefly, when you look at the forums like the Farm Bill uh, discussion, also the, the National Farm Policy conversation, as far as issues that you would anticipate to be the biggest discussed, and, and I know that's 
fluid because you're going to have uh, feedback from from people that come to FarmFest. But what would you envision as as numbers one, two, three, and four as far as what will be discussed farm bill, farm policy? Well, I think with the farm bill and probably the same with farm policy, obviously, uh, you know, the commodity programs uh, will be addressed there that are included in the farm bill, the Art County program, and uh, if that needs to be tweaked. Uh, right along with that, I think ranking near the top is crop insurance. We just talked about crop insurance and the importance of it when we have these crop losses, and uh, the uh, administration and some members of Congress have prov- uh, kind of proposed some pretty dramatic changes to crop insurance, uh, like limiting the amount of the premium subsidy or getting rid of the harvest price option that most farmers utilize in their revenue protection policies. So I'm guessing that'll be a big discussion as well and I think conservation programs uh, also part of the farm bill uh, we're at the max uh, 24 million acres uh, in the CRP program a lot of uh, there's a lot of momentum I think to increase that of course that increases the budget and you know on all of these proposals the budget comes into play Uh, beyond the farm bill I think certainly uh, Rural health care, uh, which is one of our forums, is a big issue. Uh, trade agreements, uh, NAFTA and other agreements uh, affecting agriculture. And uh, and uh, not that it's uh, as big in some areas in Minnesota, but certainly it is in uh, certain industries. And uh, nationwide is the whole immigration policy and how that impacts agriculture. And, of course, I think... Uh, some of the environmental and uh, water issues, even with Whitus, kind of uh, slowed down a little bit. It's still out there uh, on the front burner for a lot of folks. Well, what I typically do, if I'm, I'm curious about FarmFest, I'll just go to Google and type in, uh, for this year, 2017 FarmFest, and that takes me to kind of a one-stop shop webpage with all the information, a way to get tickets for the three-day event. Um, any other uh recommendations as far as uh, for people that would like to find out more about FarmFest this year? I think that's a great idea. You go to the website, uh, all the information, not only on the forums, but like you say, how to get tickets, uh, if you want to rent a cart or whatever you want to do. And and I guess the other thing with FarmFest, again, I think the exhibit area is pretty well sold out. So it's a great place to see uh, kind of what's happening in agriculture. That's Kent TC, one of the organizers of FarmFest, August 1st, 2nd, and 3rd at the Gill Fillin Estate between Morgan and Redwood Falls in southwest Minnesota. Thank you, Mark. Minnesota Matters will return after this. want our children to succeed and be remembered. My daughter Deej is remembered here at Byron High School for a tragedy that took her life. While driving home from her first day of senior year, Deej decided to write a text message. It was the last message she ever wrote, a message she never sent. 20% of fatalities involving teen drivers are distraction related. One text killed my daughter. I beg you, please put your phones away and focus on the road. If your friends are distracted while driving, speak up. Offer to be their designated texter. Another Deej doesn't need to die. For your life and all the lives on the road, please put the phone down while driving. 
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Football season is just around the corner as training camp has already started for the Minnesota Vikings and fall camp will get underway next week for the U of M Golden Gophers. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm spent some of the past week in Chicago covering the Big Ten football media days and has more on Minnesota Matters. Scott Gopher football coach P.J. Fleck took part in his first Big Ten football media days in Chicago this past week. He brought with him three players, including junior running back Rodney Smith and senior defensive standouts Jonathan Celestine and Stephen Richardson. I sat down with Celestine and Richardson in the Windy City for Minnesota Matters. Richardson, a defensive tackle, is ready for fall camp to start next week. It's always a good feeling to know that camp is coming because then you know, the like you said, like the season's coming and uh, you just start to get a little itch of being back out there under the lights. August 2nd is the start of camp, so it is just around the corner. Uh, take me through what the camp is like. Uh, you know, I'm sure it gets, you know, you're two weeks in, you're like ready for a game to start, but also you know that the harder you work, the, the better the season can start, right? Well, um, this is our first first year with uh, Coach Flake, so I'm not 100% sure how this camp is going to be like. And uh, there's a couple new changes to the rules, but uh, Knowing, knowing Coach Flake is going to be demanding because he's going to definitely bring the culture along, and then the culture doesn't it doesn't fold for anybody. So it's definitely going to stay the same. It's going to be very demanding every day. How has this defense changed? I know it's maybe too early to, to determine too much of it, but strategically, will you, will you be asked to do much different up front? Um, doing too much different up front? I don't think so. It's always... Uh, Fighting off O linemen, I know I'm. I know I'm going to get a couple uh, double teams, but if everybody does their their job like the uh, like the coach tells us to, like the results will handle themselves. The uh, expectations. I think one of the media, uh, the newspapers, came out with a poll. They had the Gophers fifth in the uh, Big Ten West. I know you want to prove those guys wrong. One, do you pay much attention to that? And two, you know what? What are goals for you as a team? Well, I, n- I never pay attention to any of that preseason stuff. Um, it's just for the preseason, just uh, just something to look at. Um, but like when Coach Coach Flight came in, uh, the culture demands you to be the best every every day and change your best every day. So when when we play Buffalo, uh, we're gonna give our best. But then when we play uh, the next team, we're gonna play even higher. So it, we're gonna change our best every single day and every single game. With this uh, group on the other side of the football, new quarterback for the first time since you've been here, how much do you pay attention to that? And uh, if so, what, what have you seen from there? Uh, I haven't seen, like, uh, not that I haven't seen anything. Uh, I just haven't really paid attention to that side of the ball. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of focused on uh, the, the defense and how we do things and uh, making sure the culture is uh, being presented on that side of the ball. Coach Fleck talked to us a little earlier about the idea of of getting guys to buy in because it is a different routine. It's a different process. The culture changes a little bit. And he said especially older guys who came here to play for somebody else. Was it a long transition for you, a buy-in period, or or kind of take me through that transition? Because really it's kind of three head coaches now in three years for you as a a senior. Oh, yeah. Um, I I have respect for all the coaches that I've been through. Um, But it was definitely like a buy-in period. I I had to gain trust. but it wasn't it wasn't too bad because I was also recruited by Coach Fleck in when I was in high school to Western Michigan. So um, I, I knew what he was about, and uh, I definitely trust him. Jonathan Celestine is a linebacker. He too is ready for camp to get underway. That's one of the best times of the year, the month of August, where it's just strictly football. 
me and my teammates, the coaches, just all of us in, in the facility all day. I love it. How much uh, can a team grow and what happens in August maybe wins a game for you in November? Have you seen that happen? Uh, yes, I feel like this is the best time of year where the team will grow a lot. Um, and it starts off with the first game, depending on how you come out the first game, and you take it one week at a time. You can't really look forward to, yeah, during the whole month of August where you're looking forward to the last game, then you never start off with it. You have to look forward to the first game. With P.J. Fleck, do you expect any uh, wrinkles in uh, fall camp? I know you've been through three with the previous uh, regime. Uh, what do you What do you think uh, fall camp will be like with P.J. Fleck running it? Um, I'm excited to see how it will be. I'm not sure how. I know practice uh, in the spring was different, something we've never experienced before, but I love the fast-paced tempo that he keeps us at, and he's running offense, defense, special teams. He's running all over the field, left, right, Sometimes he even raced me to different spots, so I love to see how this camp going to be. Can you beat him in a race? Yeah, I beat him a couple of times during spring. <laughs> you guys, I beat him like twice. He beat me like maybe once. That was like the warm-up one. You know, you got three races, the warm-up, and you got two regular races. What is that like? Well, you got a, a younger coach like that who wants to be part of the competition and, and help drive you guys. I feel like it helps a lot. Some players, I, have, I feel like it helps the whole team just to see that our coach is actually out there, like, competing with us, doing drills. Because most of the time, I think players think that their coach isn't willing to do the same drills. But when you see a coach get involved, it just boosts your mentality. of like, well, I need to do better because I see coach doing it. I know I can do better than that. That's Jonathan Celestine and Stephen Richardson talking gopher football in Chicago on Minnesota Matters. Scott? Thank you, Mike. That is going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.